Yeah, that is awesome. That is inspiring stuff. Uh, well, hey, y'all, my name's Cody. If I haven't met you yet, so glad you're here on the 4th of July weekend. I'm thankful to live in a free country and for everyone who sacrificed to make it free and continue uh, in the beautiful place that we live. Um, thankful you're here in person or for those of you online who are watching from your lake house or beach house or whatever, good for you. We're glad you're here too, I guess. I hope the, we- I hope the weather's better there than what we're getting today. But, all right, so David said... We're launching into a new sermon series, and in order to get our minds in the place of uh, the author who wrote the book that we're about to study, here's what I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine, oh, I lost my spot. I want you to imagine place, pattern, and person. I want you to imagine that you find yourself in a season of life or a place of life that you never wanted to be. And you're committing patterns or habits in your life that you never wanted to commit. And it's turning you into a person that you never, ever wanted to become. A few examples, maybe it's it's that you've relapsed. You find yourself, again, drugs, alcohol, whatever your poison is. Um, You find yourself relapsed and you wake up the next morning and your entire body's sore and you can't exactly remember why. All you know is that last night you got into it with people that you care about, people that you love, and you've burned some relational bridges, and you're tempted to think in this moment, this is just who I am, this is the lot in life that was given to me. Or maybe the pattern of life you're in is you you blow up on your friends, family, or kids. You have fits of anger, and you don't know why you have fits of anger. All you know is that your grandpa had anger issues, and your dad had anger issues, and now you have anger issues, and you feel like it's an out-of-body experience, and you don't have control over it, and you find yourself stuck. Maybe the season of life you find her in is a life of passivity and fear. You're living a life that's completely reactionary. You feel like you have uh, no control or ownership over your life. You're stagnant. You're just letting life happen to you. You're letting your family kind of go by. You're, You're living passive. And to kind of turn that corner and take ownership of your life would feel like a lot. So you're tempted to just stay where you're at. And when we find ourselves in seasons of life like this, we can be tempted to, to write our own sentencing, to, to think I've made my bed, now I have to lay in it. I've dug so deep that I can't dig back out. I can't repent. I can't turn a new leaf. This is just where I'm at. And, and the dude we're talking about today, whose book we're going to be studying, I think he had to feel similarly. This guy would have felt like he sold his soul to the devil. Uh, what he was doing uh, in, in the, the, the job that he took, he, he was basically committing a cultural Jewish sin. People would have hated him for it. Um, his family likely would have considered him dead, no longer a son. And he would have likely lost all of his relationships, but he held on to his idol. He held on to it. And so we're in this new series called Disqualified, and we're reading through the book of Matthew and our scripture reading plan. If you want to jump on that plan, we have journals right out there. We read two chapters a day. So we're in the book of Matthew right now. In Matthew, the reason he would have felt stuck before he came to know Christ is uh, he was a tax collector, and tax collectors were hated back in in this time period. Absolutely hated. Here's why. Is the Romans... They occupied the Israelite people, the Jewish people. And the Romans, they ruled really much of the world. And the way they were able to rule the world is with 
a, a, bru- a brutality, an iron fist with strength. That's how they domineered over the people. Not only were they brutal, but the, way, the things they took from the people that they ruled over was brutal. So they taxed the people crazy amounts. The Jews weren't thriving. They were, they were barely surviving. Uh, there was a tax on everything. There was a grain toll and a tax on produce and a sales tax and a temple tax and an occupational tax and a customs tax and a transit tax and many other taxes. And so Matthew, who was a fellow Jew, he would take taxes from his own people and give it to the enemy, therefore like spitting on his own people, right? He was a traitor and people would have despised him. And the way that Matthew made his money is after the people paid all of these taxes, he would put whatever percentage he wanted on top of that and then he would skip that amount off the top. That's how he made his money. And a Roman guard would follow him around and kind of be his muscle and, and help, uh, help get whatever he demanded from the people. And so in order for us in today's day to kind of visualize this, I want you to imagine with me that America has been occupied. We've been overtaken by another country. And let's say it's like Iceland. They don't even have an army, but somehow they've overtaken America, right? And so we're living in war, in like desolate war times. Gasoline is running out. The cell phone towers have been knocked out. There's no electricity. Cash is king. Your credit is frozen. The whole deal, right? And you're living in misery. And in your neighborhood, there's, there's one house that has all of these things, and it's Matthew's house. He has electricity, his pool is heated, his house is air-conditioned, he's streaming Netflix on the inside with his high-speed Wi-Fi, and everyone else in the neighborhood just loathes this guy, right? Every time people get together in your neighborhood to commiserate, it always comes back to how bad things are, and then it falls back on Matthew because Matthew represents the enemy. And so this is Matthew. He's an outsider. He's felt disqualified. And here's the deal. In today's society, if you're a little bit of an outsider, like it could be almost mysterious or unique or kind of cool, like if you're unique or off the wall or or weird in some way, shape, or form, it's not a huge deal. And even if you're interested in things that no one else around you is interested in, you can usually find subcultures of people on the internet that kind of become your tribe and your community. But back in this day, like to be an outsider was your worst nightmare. You, in this collectivist culture, you didn't want to stick out. You didn't want to be unique. You wanted to fit in. And there's this theologian, uh, Thaddeus Williams, He talks about the outsider versus insider dynamic. So notice in this quote all of the the outsider-insider language. It says, exclusion, expulsion, alienation, and forsakenness. These were the major themes in the ancient Jewish world. The impure could be expelled from the community. The carcass of sacrificed animals had to be burned outside the camp. The scapegoat was sent out to a remote area, but to be inside was to be pure, wanted, loved, at home, and alive. Think even about the Jewish temple. The way the Jewish temple was built is you would start outside, and the further in you would go, the more holy it would become. The farther inside, culminating with the holy of holies, right? So, but, but to be outside, it was to be dirty, unwanted, despised, outcast, and left to die. This outsider idea was so prevalent that one of the words for hell 
in the New Testament is the word Gehenna, and it symbolized this place outside the city gate where they burned trash, where they burned animal carcasses, um, so the flame, it never went out, and there were people who were diseased and deformed and babies that were left to die through the practice of infanticide, and there would have been weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is this outsider feeling. It's this feeling of hell on earth. And so Matthew, he would have been an outsider of outsiders. Tax collectors were talked about among the same ranks as murderers and robbers. And rabbis, the the religious leaders of the day, they taught that tax collectors, they were disqualified from being a witness in court. Uh, They were excommunicated from synagogue worship, so not allowed to worship in community. Um, They were societal outcasts and not allowed to exchange money at the temple treasury. And so with all of this in mind, we're going to dive into chapter 1, knowing that he's this outsider. Um, And in Matthew chapter 1 is uh, the genealogy of Jesus, or the bloodline that leads to Jesus. Now, back in this time period, you would write a genealogy like you wrote a resume. You try to write, when you write your resume, you make yourself look real good, right? And in a genealogy, in this collectivist culture, your family name meant something, your reputation and who you were and the lineage that you came from, it all meant something. And so usually the angle people take when they write their genealogy is, I want to make myself and my family look really great. That's not the angle that Matthew takes when he writes the genealogy. Uh, Let's dive in. So verse 1 says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac father of Jacob, Jacob father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now let's stop right here, because this is a woman's name in the genealogy, and in this paternalistic culture, you didn't add women's names in the genealogy unless it like really, really meant something. So Matthew didn't do this nonchalantly, he didn't do it haphazardly, he meant something when he did this. And and with every woman that he puts, we're going to study most of them uh, today, most of the women. And and so as the reader, as the Jewish reader would have been reading this in this time period, they would have slammed on the brakes at this. Why Why did he go out of his way to include Tamar in this genealogy. I think it's because Tamar, it's what her story represented. The, the story of Tamar represents terrible brokenness in this family lineage. This story is wild and weird, and I'm going to try to explain it in 30 seconds and probably make it worse uh, than making it better, but here's my best attempt. So Tamar, she was married to a wicked man, When this wicked man died, it was her father, Judah's job, to be her redeemer, to find her a replacement spouse, to continue the family line, to take care of her. And Judah did so in a really sketchy, dark, twisted way. He was not right to her. He was not honoring to God. And so what Tamar did is she took matters into her own hands by disguising herself as a prostitute, sleeping with her father-in-law, Judah, and became pregnant. Now, when she became pregnant, Judah was like, aha, you had sex outside of marriage. You're going to die for it. And she's like, what? It's your kid. Take that. And, um, and because of that, she proved herself more righteous than Judah. I know, like, without context, all that sounds probably pretty weird. But her story, and so we see in, in the lineage of Jesus, her story, like, in the line of Jesus, we have incest. We're three verses into the genealogy. We're not very far. Already there's incest. And then we're going to jump over to verse 5 and and continue uh, through. It says, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And so again, another woman in the genealogy. Why is she here? Well, Rahab, she was a prostitute. 
And when the Israelite people wanted to overtake her city, um, she helped the spies in that city. The reason she was willing to do it is because God revealed himself to her. And so her declaration was this. In Joshua chapter 2, verse 11, Rahab the prostitute says, The Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. So she's had this experience. God revealed himself to her. So now she's helping the Israelites overtake her city. When they do so, she basically becomes an honorary Israelite, marries an Israelite man, has a child, and through that lineage leads to Jesus. So, so far we have incest and we have prostitution. The rest of verse 5 says this, Rahab was the mother of, the mother of Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Now, I don't have a bad thing to say about Ruth. She was truly an amazing show of character, but she would have felt like an outsider. As this art depicts, she's kind of over here, everyone else is over here, because she was a Moabite. And the Moabites and Israelites, they did not really intermingle and mix, and so she would have felt just misunderstood. She would have felt like an outsider. So that's in the genealogy. And then we get to verse 6. And verse 6 said, David was the father of Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And, and, and like, again, this was Matthew going way out of his way. He could have just said, uh, David was the father of Solomon, then moved on. But he blatantly said, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And this was pointing to the story of David and Bathsheba and the brokenness in this story. This is not prim, this is not proper, here's what happened. Is King David, he was chosen by God to lead the people, and later he was called a man after God's own heart, but he had a rocky past that at best included adultery and scandal, but more than likely included forcing himself upon Bathsheba, getting her pregnant. Once she was pregnant, he covered up the scandal by murdering her husband and, you know, inviting her to be one of his uh, wives. And so through the birth of that child, Solomon would continue the family line that would lead to Jesus. And so these are some of the women in the genealogy. I'm going to speed up and talk about some of the guys' stories. Uh, so here is all the, all the people listed in the genealogy. So I'm just going to start listing off uh, some of them and the brokenness that they represent. So Abraham was a liar and a coward, and then his son Jacob was just like him, a liar and a coward. He, uh, he cheated his brother out of a birthright, lied to his dying father. Perez and Zerah were the products of incestuous relationship. Solomon indulged in a ton of sexual sin, marrying and sleeping with hundreds of foreign women and concubines. His house was dysfunctional. His sons ended up splitting the kingdom of Israel. Rehoboam was filled with arrogance. Uzziah allowed false worship to continue in Judah, so the Lord made him a and therefore unclean. Ahaz, I think this guy is the worst. He engaged in all-out pagan worship, burning one of his own sons to a false pagan god. Manasseh rebuilt altars to false gods. And so in this list of people, there are a few good people. Um, we have Jeho Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, and Josiah. They did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But for the most part, the, the family line of Jesus is just chock full of sinners and scoundrels. And, and so why would Matthew write like this? Why would he drag the lineage and the name of Jesus through the mud? What point was he trying to get to? Well, again, remember, he, he was a tax collector before he followed Jesus. He was the worst of the worst. He was an outsider of all outsiders. Even after Matthew started following Jesus, 
he likely would have still felt a little bit on the outside because the other disciples probably didn't love him. They probably didn't love tax collectors, especially Simon the Zealot, one of the followers of Jesus. A zealot was someone who was trained to kill Roman soldiers and anyone who sympathized with Rome. They were trying to fight back against Rome. And so the humor of God as he put together Matthew the tax collector with Simon the Zealot and made them like go do ministry together, which is hilarious. But Matthew, again, even likely after he gave up being a tax collector, just felt like this outsider. And so he's writing the book to people who might be like him, people who might pick up the Bible and think, I don't know if I can draw close to this God. He's so righteous, so holy. I don't know if I can do this. I feel like a loser. I'm an outcast. You should see what I've done. And so Matthew's starting the book to rope people in and to let them know they can be on the inside as well. And isn't it true that, like, whatever struggle you've been through in life, you have a heart that breaks for people like you, right? So if you've been, if if you've struggled with broken family dynamic or body image, you're overweight or underweight, or you've struggled with addiction or whatever it is, you have a heart that breaks for people like you. And who did Matthew's heart break for? It was the outsider. It was the disqualified. It was the unseen and overlooked. And so in the book of Matthew, we're going to read in weeks to come, We see over and over and over again him record stories where Jesus interacts with the broken and the outside and he welcomes them in. So it's the story of Jesus healing the demon-possessed man and it's interacting with the woman at the well and it's the centurion soldier whose servant he heals and it's the bleeding woman who he heals and gives, offers forgiveness to and it's the story of the leper that Jesus is willing to look at and touch and make eye contact with and give value to. And so all of these stories just again and again and again, Jesus is welcoming in the outsider. And so there's these overarching messages uh, as we uh, read Matthew that we want to look out for. The first overarching message is this idea Matthew kind of pits up uh, shame and what shame makes us do versus the gospel. So because of shame, when we sin, we're tempted to think, I need to withdraw from community. I need to hide this sin. Nobody can know about this. My sin is such a big deal. And that's what the enemy wants us to think is your sin is a big deal. Um, and, and, And so we can be tempted to think in our heart of hearts that my sin, that I've somehow outsinned the sacrifice of Jesus, which is untrue, and you may never say it out loud, but that's what we can believe, which what that really is, is pride, is we're focusing too much on our sin and me and what I've done, and we're not focusing enough on Jesus and what he's done on the cross. And so Matthew is a walking testimony that anybody, if they have breath left in their lungs, they can repent and follow him. That's what he did. That's what all these people in the genealogy did with broken stories, is they chose to, to follow God and be used by him. And so the only people, the only one who can disqualify you from following God is you, right? The world can't pull you away from God, and the devil can't make you sin. Like, it, it's your choice, right? It's your ownership, and God wants to partner with you and, and, and have you follow him. Another narrative, uh, overarching narrative we see that's inadvertently addressed by Matthew's gospel is the idea that some of us think that I can't be used by the kingdom of God because of what I've done or because of what's been done to me or because I'm not as skilled or gifted as that person. I'm not like them. I don't have their resources. And we think we're disqualified. 
But, but again, it, all we need to do is look at this genealogy and how messed up people were. But they were in the right place at the right time with the right connections or the right job. And God used them. God wanted to use them just how they were with what they had and strive towards the kingdom together. And that's what he wants to do with us. If we bring God what we have, he, he wants to use it and he wants to multiply it. But then the biggest, I think the biggest takeaway for today, we're just going back to the basics, people. The biggest takeaway for today is that God has such a heart for the outsider and the disqualified. He is for the orphan and the alien and the widow and the dirty and the broken. Like God is aggressively for these people. And we see examples of this in the Bible. When the people of God don't treat these people well, God is angry. Like he is not pleased with his people when they don't treat the outsider and the disqualified well. And and this was good news in my life that God is for the outsider. I gave my life to Jesus when I was in junior high. And junior high is a hard season for everybody, right? Hormones and puberty and everybody hates everyone and they're vicious. Um, not only that, but my, uh, my best friend moved away when I was in junior high and I was in between friend groups and I also fractured my back and I was out of sports and kind of the identity and fellowship that you get from sports. And then my family life was chaos, parents going through a divorce, um, addiction in my family, just all sorts of stuff. And, 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 and the, it, I, I remember, like genuinely eating lunch alone, like sitting between two groups of people, and I would position my body and my tray in a way that I tried to make these people think I was with them and them that I was with them. I just didn't want anyone to know that I was alone, but I was alone. And I remember the one place that I would go to where I felt like I was a part of something was my youth group. And it was the youth leaders that made me feel so loved and going to summer camp where I gave my life to Christ. That stuff meant the world to me. It probably saved my life. And and to know that there was a God, he didn't just create me, he didn't just save me, but he wanted a relationship with me. Are you kidding? Like he wants the outsider, he wants the broken, and we want you to know that and feel that deep in your bones that God is pursuing you. And he cares about you and he's seen what's happened in your past and he knows what's headed in your future and he wants a relationship with you. And so we we hope that you feel that and stand in that truth today. But then we also want to be a church that's constantly reminding ourselves um, what our mission is. Because like David said, there are millions of people who feel disqualified. Outside these church walls, the amount of people who are believing the lie of the enemy, that they're unwanted, they're not seen, they weren't created in their mother's womb, and and God doesn't have a plan and a purpose for them. They don't know these truths, that God loves them, that he adores them, that he made them on purpose for a purpose, and he's called you and me to be the mouthpiece. He's called us to be the hands and feet of Jesus to show this world uh, his love for them. Because the gospel, the truth of the gospel, is that Jesus became an out on our behalf, right? Jesus came down to earth and he was born as a weak human like us to a poor family in an obscure village. And later in life, he would become the ultimate scapegoat who went outside the city gate and was slaughtered on our behalf so that we could be welcomed into the family of God. That's the gospel. That's the truth that we stand on. And if you don't know Jesus today, we always want to be inviting you in. It's not enough just to know that he, that God, it's not enough to just believe in God. It's not enough to just know that he's our creator. He wants a personal relationship with us. And he doesn't just want part of us. He wants all of us, right? 
He wants us to give up the little that we have so that we can be about him and his story and his grand narrative. So Cody needs to give up living about me to, to living about God and his kingdom. And so um, you can, like, we invite you into that. And if you want to pray on your own, it's as simple as saying, God, I don't want to be the king of my life anymore. I repent, I confess, and I invite you into my heart. We'd also love to, to walk you through that today during prayer time. Um, I'm going to end my time today uh, with a video, and it's about a five-minute video clip of someone who is such an outsider, so disqualified. Her name is Annie Lobert, and uh, Annie, she escaped sex trafficking, um, and, and she, she's in a video, an I Am Second video. You guys remember those I Am Second testimonial videos? They're beautiful and amazing. Um, and, and so Annie's story, you're actually going to hear more about her story on week three. Um, David, he's going to not only play uh, some of her story, but he, right now, Northstar is in works with talking with a nonprofit that helps women get out of sex trafficking. And it was really fun. David told me that on like Tuesday. I had, I had already written this talk, already planned on showing this video. It's awesome how the Lord does that. Um, but, but we're diving into like the later part of this video. So what you need to know before we dive in is that Annie grew up in a chaotic and super abusive household. Later in life, she jumped into prostitution and fell in love with a man who abused her in every way imaginable, uh, forced her with her life um, to continue in sex trafficking, took all of her money. Um, just a wild, wild story. And so the part we're jumping into now is when she's just spiraling down and down and down. Let's watch. Looking in the mirror at myself, thinking that God was angry with me. I would get in the shower and I would scrub my body and I would think, I'll never ever be clean. I started freebasing cocaine. And one night, I just decided that I was just gonna get higher than I could than I've ever been before because I just wanted to erase all the pain, the pain of the cancer, the pain of my uncle, my sister and my grandpa dying within three months of each other, the pain of losing all those years with my family up in the Midwest, the pain of losing all my friends, losing my cars, losing everything I had ever made. I took the hit of that Coke and I fell back. I, I went completely blind. It's like the whole room, the light that was on in that room turned dark. And I remember laying there, and I felt like this demonic presence just come over me that I was completely alone, and I got really, really scared, and I just instinctively knew. I knew that I was at death's door. I was in this dark, dark cave, and I knew. I knew it was over. And I saw my family. I saw my funeral. And I was in the coffin. And everybody was crying and they were wiping their faces and they were saying, she was just a prostitute. That's what I said, Jesus. I don't know if you're real, but I don't want to die. The ambulance came, 
And the doctor came up to me and he grabbed my hand. And he said, you are lucky to be alive. You have so much drugs in your system, little lady. You should be dead. God must be with you. And I knew that Jesus heard my prayer. And I laid there. And I had this peace come over me that was nothing like I'd ever felt in my entire life. And I knew God gave me a second chance. It got better and I started reading my Bible. I recovered and was afraid to go to church. Come on, an ex-prostitute. Do I think if I walk in church, people are gonna look at me and really love me? But I walked in that church and people embraced me. And God just really started doing that inner healing. And the Holy Spirit was just like speaking to me, telling me that I was beautiful and that I was chosen and that I was set apart and that I was a sanctified and I was a holy vessel for Him. I started to stand on Jesus' words that I'm whole, that I'm healed, that I'm pure, that I'm a virgin in Him. And that gives me peace. I remember I was vacuuming my house one day, and the Lord so said to me, He said, Annie, I want you to go back down to that strip, and I want you to tell the girls that are in slavery that I love them. And so that's what I'm called to do, to simply tell them, God loves you. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter how deep, how dirty you feel, that there's redemption. You are white as snow when you accept Him into your heart. Little girl lost, thought no one loved her, thought no one wanted her ran away from her castle. But God met her on that dark road. He said, you can come home now. I'm right here, and I never left you. Redemption, redeemed, set free. That's my life, as love. that was full of tragedy, that was full of heartache, that was full of brokenness, and turn it into something beautiful. Only Jesus can do that for us. When I think about Jesus, I think about one who runs to the broken, who, who ran for me broken. I can think a couple years ago, I looked back at my past and I went, there's a train wreck back there. And if I keep looking at the train wreck, I'm going to drown in that train wreck. But only Jesus. He takes that train wreck and he makes something beautiful out of it. So if you're here today and you think that you're an outsider, that, that your story can't be redeemed, you're wrong. 
because Jesus came to redeem every story. And when we say yes to Jesus, our entire genealogy and family line changes because we don't have to look back at that family line that was a train wreck anymore. We can look forward because we are adopted into a family with a heavenly father that runs to us. A heavenly father that wants to restore every piece of our broken heart. A heavenly father that wants to put a new name on us and he wants us to wear his name. It happened for Matthew. He was this outsider and Jesus said, let me put a new name on you. Let me restore the genealogy from, from your past. It happened for Jesus. His genealogy was restored in perfection and it can happen for us. And so if that's you this morning, we're gonna invite prayer teams up and, and we'd love to pray with you about restoring the brokenness in your heart because Jesus came to, to make us whole. He came to take all the broken pieces and make them whole in us and to not leave us in that broken place. So come up and get prayer today for that. The other part is that we want to be a church. This whole series is about being a church that runs to the broken, that doesn't walk, that doesn't look at the broken, that runs at the broken. We wanna run at those who think they have no chance. We wanna run at the ones who are, are crouched in the corner feeling like nobody even knows they're alive and nobody would care anyway. And we want to tell them about this heavenly father that loves them and that made them and that wants to restore them. And so if you are in the place this morning where you're saying, I just don't know which way to run. What is, what is the call that God has on my life to run to the broken, run to the missing? Where can I do that? How do I do that? We wanna pray with you about that too. So come up and get prayer for God's discernment. Like the Murrays, they know where God has them running right now to run toward the broken. We wanna know where God has us running toward the broken as well. And so we wanna invite you into this story that with Jesus, the story is never over. It's just beginning and we wanna invite you into a new story today. And so I'm gonna pray for us, come up and get communion, which is the, the representation of Jesus dying on the cross, his body being broken for us, his blood being spilled for us. And when we take communion, we just remember that sacrifice that he gave for us on the cross. And we say, thank you, Lord, because without that sacrifice, we can't be restored. And so we pray restoration over every single one of us today. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you restore. Thank you that you come running and you came running for me and you come running for each one of us. Oh Lord, you wanna restore every moment of brokenness in our past and you wanna rewrite the story going forward with a new name stamped on us a new genealogy. God, you, you then declare that we go out and we go after the missing and we run after the broken in your name. Lord, we wanna do that well too. So will you direct us? Who is it you want us to touch? Who is it you want us to tell your story to and, and reveal your love to, Father? Stir in our hearts right now. Those that need to hear your story and know the love that you have for them. We pray in Jesus' name.